um, let's go ahead and jump in and get on it. So I appreciate everybody joining this evening. We are here to talk about uh, safety at sea. So we've got about um, six or seven owners that have signed up to be our panel for this conversation. And we have a lot of other owners I've noticed that have joined, which is great um, as well. So we have lots of Interi's um, owners on this call and uh, let's just start with introductions. So my name, myself, uh, my name is Mark Silverstein. I am an Interi's owner. I am uh, on field trip and I am based in Malaysia at the moment, uh, trying to get back to the US as soon as we possibly can. So that's our, our plan at this moment. Uh, let's continue to go around. Jason, you want to go ahead and do a quick intro? Where are you feel, located and all that? I, well, I feel a little bit like um, a college guy that hangs out at high school, after, you know, in kind of an uncomfortable way. <laughs> so I apologize. <laughs> you know, I do not own an Interiors anymore, but clearly I have some small love for the boat. Um, <laughs> I live currently in St. Pete and I'll be heading back to New York soon. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. Uh, let's see if we have, do we have Russell? Russell, are you online? I don't see Russell online yet. Um, Gord, introductions? Yes, please. I'm Canadian from just north of Toronto. Um, similar to Jason, uh, former owner. My wife, Debbie, and I sailed for five years on Bella Luna. We launched uh, right around the same time Mark and uh, Sarah did and about 21 or 2200 nautical miles. And um, and then sold a few years ago. Miss it uh, every day, really. Well, Gord, we miss you in the Ontario's community. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're happy that you can join us and be at least one of the uh, contributors for the panel conversation. Yeah, All right, so I'm just going to let the other folks uh, jump in as they do, and let's go ahead and get started with the conversation of safety at sea. Before I do that, I want to give you a little bit of information about this photo that you see on your screen. Um, this is this was, I think, the world's sixth or seventh largest sailboat, and it caught on fire um, a number of months ago, and it caught on fire about 50 nautical miles north of where we are right now. Um, I had the opportunity three weeks ago when I was up in Langkawi on my boat with some friends to actually dive this wreck. Um, it sunk. Uh, the masts were still above, above water, but we were able to dive this wreck on this exact boat. And we pulled off um, about 150 feet of halyard that we salvaged. Of course, the halyard is about you know this 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 wide in, in in diameter. But it was a lot of fun to kind of go out there. And I hated to take it off the boat, sort of, but uh, we donated it to the uh, local American school here for the kids to do tug of war and build some sort of ropes course or something. But anyway, this this was a real boat. It just happened not too long ago to catch on fire. So speaking of which, let's talk about and let's get into the first conversation, and that's uh, fire pre pre fire prevention on board, and what are we doing as owners to uh, prevent fire um, on our boats? And so I don't want to be the person talking the whole time, so I would like to just simply have somebody jump in. And Jason, I'm going to pick on you first. You want to just talk about what you did on your boat? I see you smiling. Um, any anything to add about fire extinguishers, automated suppression? How did you avoid fire in the galley and all that good stuff? Well, um, I guess I would take the automated suppression thing for a moment because I, uh, I chartered a boat recently with automated suppression. And uh, I was surprised how simple the system actually is. So, uh, but I've always thought that Antares didn't need automated suppression because it's unlikely a naturally aspirated diesel will catch on fire. Diesel fuel itself, you know, doesn't burn if you put a match to it. Um, and you don't have like a super hot turbocharger lying around. So I wasn't very concerned about fire from the engine bay. Um, I was super paranoid about um, uh, LPG fire, uh, even though this, the boat is really well set up and has a great drain, but I would check to make sure that drain was still open or not open, but, you know, not something like a, a fender hadn't gotten on top of it or kinked the line. And that was about it for fire prevention, besides owning the obvious stuff like a fire blanket and having tons of fire alarms and uh, the fire extinguisher alphabet soup. Okay, thanks. Does, does anybody else have anything else to um, add about fire prevention on your boat? I mean, for us, my biggest fear is is uh, LP fire or some sort of fire in the galley, whether it be LP gas or oil. 
Um, we make it a habit on our boat to not only turn off the off solenoid in the galley, but we always go over and turn off the LP gas on the 12 volt panel as well. It's just a habit we've had since, since we've owned the boat. Um, it's overkill. You don't necessarily have to do that, but um, we are definitely concerned about fires. Probably our biggest concern on the boat. We do fire drills on the boat before we go on a passage on how to handle that. So it's just one of those things that we have to be concerned with. Um, does anybody else have anything else to add based on your experience on your interiors with fire prevention? If so, just jump in. Mark, that's Glenn. Uh, we oh, we hey, Glenn. have we've gone through the uh, you know Coast Guard and offshore you know kind of solace stuff for uh, doing some of the arc rallies, and as a result, you know checked all the boxes. Uh, we were tempted to go automated suppression, but uh, you know we didn't really feel the need. Sort of what Jason was saying, but we do have. Uh, you know, fire extinguishers in every uh, every compartment, including the battery uh, locker and uh, fire blankets around the galley. Um, and like you, we we also tend to switch off the propane at night. Yeah, sure. Um, so just another question. Has anybody actually experienced a fire aboard your boat? And what happened? And can you just tell us about how that ha how that happened and how you fixed it? Yeah, a really bad, uh, really bad pork chop experience on the grill. <laughs> but <laughs> that was that was that was easily remedied. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, I haven't had anything other than I'll share something at the very end. We have we have one final slide for the big so for for a big uh, reveal on stuff that's happened on board. Okay, we'll keep on moving then to our next topic about safety on board, and that brings us to. This whole conversation of EPIRBs. This doesn't have to be a long conversation for people, but um, what are some of the experiences that you've had with with storage locations for your EPIRB? I've noticed different boats store EPIRBs in different locations. Uh, people have different procedures when they're when they're sailing offshore for the EPIRBs. Um, how many do you have? One or two? What do you recommend? Anybody want to jump in on this? Glenn, I'll pick on you again because you're unmuted. Okay. Uh, we have an EPIRB that looks a lot like the one you've got uh, in the picture, Mark. Um, yeah. It, it is uh, always tested. I test it every year, and I test it before every offshore passage. Um, we have it mounted on uh, just uh, inside the door to the salon, um, and it's part of the you know quick grab list of stuff if we have to, uh, God forbid, abandon ship and take it with us um but uh yeah i mean i think we you know the key is you make sure that it's working all the time and make sure that you yep. renew your registration uh with the whatever that monitoring agency is that uh monitors them so that if it does go off they know who you are and who your loved ones are to contact um you test it periodically and uh you know you know uh you know where it is. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think I think for us, just to add to what you said, Glenn, we actually ended up now having two EPIRBs on board. And that's only because our first EPIRB um, came out of, it was, it was past the nine or 10 year mark. So we, we bought a second one. We didn't go through the hassle of replacing the battery, even though the battery still works and it still checks out fine. We did the safety check. So we have two on board, but we also make a, a point for us whenever we, go offshore that we take the EPIRB, which we have stored on our boat by the by the uh, door going out into the cockpit. We then store that EPIRB in our dish bag. And I don't want to have to remember to put it in the dish bag if we have a big issue. So I, that's one of the steps that we do on our side. Um, does anybody else have anything, anything else to add on EPIRBs? If not, we'll go on to the next topic. There was Any a other owner the, want to jump in? There's, there's a question. Oh, a question. Go ahead. EPIRB maintenance from Brent McLean. Oh yeah, sure. So, um, hey Brent, welcome. So, so um, here's the deal with EPIRBs. They have a auto test um, procedure that you need to do periodically, especially before you go somewhere offshore. You push a button, it'll go through and do a, a complete safety check on everything, including GPS and if everything seems to be working. 
um, at some point that battery will will die. And there's a different, I think that some of them are seven years, some of them are saying 10 years, but at some point you need to have the battery replaced. On the newer ones, like the one I think I have here on the screen, you can self-replace those batteries. On the older ones, you could not. But they're pretty maintenance-free other than making sure Sure that you keep up your registration online with the FCC or whatever the organization was. I forgot now that keeps track of the EPIRB, um MMSI numbers. Um, and otherwise, they're fairly simple. Just doing the the standard safety check by pushing that red button. You'll see here. There's a button you push to do that. Um, any other questions from anybody else? Oh, oh, Stephen Hale said fire blankets more detail. Thanks, Stephen. I just saw your your question. I mean, I should have been looking over here sooner. I'm guessing. Um, I just realized yeah. maybe maybe that's. That lightweight thing you can put over somebody or throw on top, it's it. But I will wait. The yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, no, no. It, it, in fact, it's a very important thing to have on your boat. Um, we have one in our galley. I mean, the biggest the biggest issue that would concern me is probably being an oil fire or something like right. that, some sort Reese of a fire in the galley, and you need to smother that uh, with a with a blanket. Putting the putting water on an oil fire isn't going to help. So you do need a fire blanket easily accessible in your galley. That's a must um, uh, for sure. Anybody else want to add any more comments on fire blankets? Okay. Yeah. Thank Sorry, you. Steve, I didn't, nope. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. No, no problem at all. All right. So we'll move on and let's get into this, this next um, similar topic. And this is uh, personal location beacons or PLBs. Uh, there are two main types that you can purchase, and some of them are a combination of the two, from my understanding. But you have the 406 megahertz is basically the uh, satellite version. So think of it like almost like the EPIRB, but it's for your, your uh, life vest. It will send out a, a, a link to the satellites to communicate at MOB, excuse me, and it will then go through and um, notify the safety people to kind of hopefully come and get you. The other type is more of an AIS based and AIS, just as a reminder for those of you that may not know, AIS is done over VHF signal, a lot shorter range on the AIS link. But the important part that I believe on my boat is I want to be able to recover the person immediately. I don't want to have to wait for some rescue service in the middle of the South Pacific to pick up my 406 megahertz and somehow reach me by satellite phone to someone fell overboard. So um, there are some, I believe, that do include both the AIS 406, I believe. But on our boat right now, we have the AIS link on our boat because I, I just believe that um, I need to be able to see uh, who fell overboard and know whether they're located in the water very easily and very quickly. But does anybody else want to add any more comments on this? Um, Glenn, I see you twitching. You're, you have lots of good comments. <laughs> no, Mark, we went through the same, uh, you know, selection sort of process that it sounds like you did as well. And it, it realized there's, there's two basic types. And I, I feel pretty uh, solid that the higher probability of rescue is, is from the boat from which you fell or, or something, somebody else nearby. So we opted for uh, uh, the AIS link. It's a MOB1 device, which is a small cylindrical device that can easily be fitted inside the PFD. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's got its own MMSI number. Um, I keep a, I, we've got four of them aboard. So if I, if I bring on crew, uh, they each get assigned one. I write it down. So I know, you know, which crew has which vest with which MS, MMSI number if ever goes off. So, uh, and I test them, you know, before every long passage. Yeah. Yeah, that's true because you you still just like you do with the um, uh, uh, other devices, you need to test these that are battery operated. So it's an important part of the whole process, um, which which ties into to the the next question, which Jason asked me to include in here, and I'm glad that I did. Is what happens when someone actually falls over with a PLB? Um, how does it happen? How do you recover somebody? Well. First of all, to Jason's point, Jason, you know what? Why don't you talk about this? Because this this was your um, idea to include this in this in this conversation this afternoon. Sure. Um, so my point was, uh, Larry, you know that annoying guest falls off the boat, and uh, you got to go find him. Uh, but for many people, that would be the first time they'll see the AIS go off. So what's happened? To go really specific, he's wearing. Um, his vest, it auto-inflated because he fell in the water. Uh, and the AIS sometimes are automatic or sometimes semi-automatic. He may still have to flip up the antenna. 
So effectively now his life vest is placing a VHF call to any boat that's around. And the most likely boat to catch that call is going to be your boat. But the way your boat interacts with an AS call, it's not standard across all boats. And so it's very important that you practice that. You know, I just, right. I was in Grenada, was on land and I just opened up the antenna and did a full on uh, AS call knowing that I was only triggering a bunch of boats in the boat yard. But now I could see on my chart plotter what it looked like. And I took a screenshot of that. And from that, and I knew what the tones were. And from that, then I, every time I had crew come on board, I would describe, hey, if you see this, this is bad news. It means we've lost one of the crew. Uh, and who needs that most is probably yourself because, <laughs> you know, you're hoping your crew will pick you up when you fall off. There's a, a third technology that we didn't cover, which I don't like, which are called tags. And so instead of doing yeah. a call, it's a proprietary system just for the boat. And there's one tag system, which the French guys do, a company called NKE. Uh, and the only reason why I, it slightly interests me is it can take the boat and it will send it head to wind. So it takes control of the autopilot and puts the boat head to wind. It's pretty much targeted for optimistic solo sailors. Right. Uh, but by the time, <laughs> you know, a boat going 20 knots in the Southern Ocean figures out how to go to head to wind, uh, you're gone still. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, but it, but you know, like like anything else, this is just technology that is you know, designed to help in the worst case scenario that you forgot to clip in. I mean, there there really, with few exceptions, should there be any reason that you should fall overboard on your boat unless you're just not you know doing putting into place your own safety procedures that you have. So, for example, when we have certain sea conditions on our boat. You know, everybody's required to clip in. Kids are not allowed to leave the cockpit. Sometimes not even allowed to leave the salon and go into the cockpit if we're in the really heavy weather, um, which we have been. So there's just different, you know, I mean, people fall overboard. And this is kind of a, of a you know, last ditch effort. But just to, to tie into this, when we were sailing north from New Zealand to Fiji, we had, we were in, it was blowing pretty, pretty strong, 30 plus knots of wind from behind us. We were heading north. Um, sea state was three to four meters. And there was another boat that had an issue where they um, ended up having the hydraulics on their boom vane give way. The boom came down, hit the guy in, that was on watch on the head um, and knocked him out um, in the cockpit. One of the crew inside ran outside to help him. There was hydraulic fluid on the deck. He slid over, no PFD and the water MOB. Um, the Coast Guard came. We were we were about five nautical miles from where this happened, but we could not turn our boat to go help try to do a search and rescue on this guy. It would put us at risk and ended up two lives were lost. One fell overboard and one, the guy that was hit in the head was killed. So um, it was a pretty scary thing, but no PFDs were, were on when the guy fell overboard. So it was even worse than having a PLB. Anyway, those things can happen. It's pretty tragic when it does. All right. Uh, so I, I'm speaking certain. of, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, I, I would say that the marine industry does this crazy self-defeating thing where they spend huge amounts of marketing dollars talking about scenarios that are fairly, fairly small, you know, uh, and specifically for the Antares, I, man overboard was not something I worried about a ton because by the time it hit 30 knots, the full enclosure was down. I didn't leave the enclosure. Yeah. If I got a running head start, I'd bounce off it. You know, uh, you know, there's just there literally was no way I was going to fall off that boat. Um, yeah. Later on, we talk about spinnakers. That's the only way. And I have a solution for that. Yeah, that's right. And, we, and we, you do, Jason. And we'll talk about that later, because that is something that that is, is a problem of falling overboard. And spinnakers will leave you hanging on that. Um, so speaking of hanging, talking about about uh, the worst case scenario, you have to abandon ship. Um, there are different types of life rafts that are available. And I just wanted to specifically talk about uh, my boat and what we do on our boat. So we have this Winslow six person on our boat. There are many different types of life rafts. Um, we selected the Winslow specifically for, for one big reason, and that was weight. Um, it's it's the, the manufacturer of this life raft uh, makes life rafts for aircraft and aircraft need to have things become be very light. It's also um, because it's so light, and I would argue very well designed, it's also fairly expensive. 
but it is what we have on our boat. Does anybody else want to talk about what different types of life rafts you have on your boat while you made those decisions? I have the exact same one, Mark. And, and it was the Winslow. Uh, yep. Yes. Yeah. I, I would it, say one aspect is if you plan on doing an arc event, which you may or may not want to do, but if you do, they have a certain standard that you must achieve. So don't buy the cheap one and then want to do the arc because they'll force you to upgrade. Yeah, they Jason, they want ah. an ISO. Uh, I, I did the 1500 with them. They want an ISO certified, uh, which basically is a nod to the European manufacturers. And uh, Winslow is made in Florida, as I recall. Um, but um, I got them to, to agree that it was, you know, well-engineered and, you know, as good or better than some of the ISO certified rafts. But you're right. That's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. I had the same problem because we did the sale from the BBI up to Bermuda with the, with the, um, a rally and they were on my case for my Winslow. And I, in end of the day, it became a non-event, but, but it, they did raise that flag, Jason. That's true. Does anybody else have any different type of life raft on your boat and just explain, or do you, do you, do you maybe even have, have your boat and not have a life raft? I mean, I mean, that's another, another conversation, I guess, too. Um, Gord. Yeah, go ahead, Gord. I see that you, you unmuted yourself. Yeah, we, we did not have one. Um, our 22,000 nautical miles and of course, no issue, but um, we just felt the way the Antares is designed. The only thing that would be the, the biggest problem is a full on fire of the whole boat. Um, but we felt with um, a knife, strategically placed to be able to cut the dinghy loose um we just chose not to go and add the extra weight and do it and um for us it worked out just fine sure sure um anybody else have any more comments on life rafts all righty i will move on then to the next question and that's where do you store your life raft um different interiors of course have different configurations um, this, uh, this, I believe Glenn, this is actually a photo from, from your boat, uh, with your life raft. And I have mine in the exact same location with a very similar, similar crate, uh, on ours, but there, there are two, I mean, there are a couple of different options that I've seen different owners do with their, with their life raft. One of them is to store it permanently, um, outside, which is the way I have mine stored. And, and this is Glenn's boat, I believe. The other option, um, is to store your life raft. In particular, the Winslow is pretty easy to do this in a duffel bag um, in your locker when you're not at sea. And then when you um, go at go on a big passage, you pull the life raft out and store it in the cockpit during, when you're underway and not have to have something permanently mounted um, on your boat. So a couple of different possibilities that I've seen done on different interiors. Um, does anybody want to jump in kind of and, and give your experience on what you found as far as where you store your life raft and what works and what doesn't work? Let me try to pick on somebody new here that's on the call. David, do you want to jump in or not? I'm, I know you're on mute. Or Nick, what do you guys do? Nick? Uh, our, ours is in the locker and we pull it out on passage. But I think that that's the way it was uh, when we bought it from John and Marina. Uh, I do think yeah. we'll probably eventually upgrade and, and, and mount it on the on the davits like like uh glenn and, and yourself okay and, and nick on your boat do you how do you have yours uh i'm sorry what type of life raft did you select for your boat uh it, it's the it's the one that came with the boat since we, we've just had it yeah. here for the last few months um i believe it's yeah. a winslow as well actually as, as six okay. person. and it's okay. in the duck okay. hole and we and it's in the cockpit uh locker cockpit floor locker okay. and pull it out right um, when we go on passage ship right and i know that neil on on escapade with his boat he also has the winslow uh it seems to be a popular life life raft choice for the boat but he he would keep his in the locker in a duffel bag and just deploy it when he was uh or actually pull it out the cockpit when he was underway jason what did you do i had similar your to yours but do you see how those stainless steel bars hold in the I actually had metal bands. I'm a very weak okay. man. And so in case of crisis, you have to lift the raft and its canister out and over the stainless there, I think. I'm not sure. But on mine, yeah. I just had like strappy type bands, which would cause the, 
the life raft to fall just straight to the, to the bottom. On all the race boats okay. I've done, we always have the life raft in uh, what they call it, valise mode, you know, not in a canister, but just, and then you just, okay. you just dig it out. And, you know, when you get, you know, it's a bad time when you see somebody going down to get the raft. Okay. So Has anybody had one raft? Ah. Anybody uh, had no. a life raft stolen? Yeah, I, I'll touch on a couple of things there. Um, by the way, I had a pretty clever stainless guy design my my cradle for the canister, and it actually hinges at the bottom with a couple of pins that come out on either side of the top. So uh, I didn't want to have to lift the darn thing. It's pretty heavy. So you hinge it, it the hinge pops out, and uh, and then you just toss it overboard. When uh, I do keep it padlocked uh, with a another stainless cord with a lock around it when we're not on passage, uh, particularly in, you know, Caribbean harbors and things like that, because, uh, yeah, I think they can walk away. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Glenn. And that's actually good. I, I, I see now on this photo where you could have the hinges below. I see what that does. That's, that's very clever and probably that yeah, looks great. Well done. That's how mine's set okay, up. Okay. So yeah, go ahead. I said, that's how mine's set up. It has the hinges on the bottom. It took me a while to figure out how it even worked, but that was one of the first things I figured out. <laughs> well, that's good. No, that, that's, that's a really good design. I've not seen that before. I didn't realize that that was the case. The other topic is getting around just regular, good old-fashioned um, man overboard safety gear. Um, you know, this is actually a photo of my boat over here uh, with an MOB pole, which I don't have on my boat anymore. But that was a requirement at that point when I was in uh, the BVI sailing up to Bermuda, doing it with the uh, with the ARC. I was required to have an MOB pole on my boat um, as part of that whole process with a, with a light and, and all that. Um, and then, of course, you have the uh, life sling, which is another um, op another device that's really used to be able to fairly easily recover somebody if they're in the water. You would simply deploy the life sling. It's attached to a very long floating line and a life vest or life ring. And that ring someone would hold onto as you take the boat and you circle the boat around them. Um, they can grab a hold of that, at least have some sort of a, of a flotation device while you do a recovery. Um, anybody want to add any any um, any more comments on just an MOB pole? Do you have one? Do you use the smaller, more automatic, you know, rapidly deployable? I think it's called a Dan buoy or something like that. Um, just curious what anybody, I see Jason shaking your head. Jason, give us some thoughts. I was a big fan of the Dan buoy, mostly for optical reasons. It's just really small. I stored it right yeah. next to the helm in the line bag. So it got protected. And if you ever, anybody ever came, fell off the boat, you just grab this bag and you just throw it at them. And basically what inflates is, a, almost like a pool toy with a big flag. So they can, you know, hug the pool toy and the big flags there. The second thing, uh, Life Sling was originally created for monohull guys in the IOR days when the sterns were very tough to board the boat and you'd attach them, you know, systems like that off the boom to get like a 200 pound guy who's got 50 pounds of water on him back on board. There are a lot of really sad stories of guys dying racing sailboats in San Francisco Bay where they just couldn't get the guy on in time. You know, then Terry's, you know, the bottom step in any seaway is almost underwater, right? And so I always thought my recovery strategy was going to be ho hove to, check to make sure there's no lines in the water, turn the engines on and just drift down to the person. And with both engines, yeah. you're, you have so much control of the boat, even in big seas, I practice it. And you just kind of drift onto the person and, you know, hopefully you can do a boarding quite easily at that point. Yeah. That's something that we've never tried to do on our boat um, is to uh, do an actual recovery. We do a lots of MOB drills whenever we go on a big passage, but we have never done a drill on the recovery side because my thinking was similar to yours, Jason, that we would just use that back stern, that back stern step to um, uh, get them, get them on board. Um, of course that assumes that they're conscious <laughs> um, number one. Um, and so that's a whole nother, other issue if they're not. Um, anybody else want to add any more insight on MOB safety gear? If not, we'll keep moving. Just, we have quite yeah, a few more slides quick, to go through. So we'll keep, just a yeah, quick question, ahead. Jason, what was that first thing you mentioned that you keep by the helm and the 
in the rope bag? It's called a Dan buoy. It's an auto inflatable device. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And we have, we have one as well. It's a, it's a canister hydrostatic inflation type of device that acts as a, uh, you know, as as Mark's uh, pole and uh, and uh, and uh, horseshoe in one, but it's in it's sort of self-inflating. Yeah, and it looks a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's it's small. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's fairly painful, frankly. Um, okay, so then you know, kind of going back to this whole you know man overboard stuff, but the whole idea is never to fall overboard to begin with. Um, so I, I actually pulled this example here from the American Sailing Association on how to, you know, quote unquote, properly rig a catamaran. Now, this is not reality um, on most catamarans. I'm not sure who drew this, but you don't really have going across the top of your of your uh, <laughs> deck like this, your, your jack lines. You could never walk on deck. You'd have to be ducking underneath the jack line coming down this direction. But anyway, that's what they drew. Um, I thought I would just show you show you what we do on our boat and how we rig our jack lines. Um, and just for those of you that may be new to the term jack line, a jack line are, is a very flat, high strength nylon um, uh, line, if you will, or, or webbing actually, that you would use your, your um, clip in on your, on your PFD to clip in so you don't fall overboard. Or if you fell overboard, you'd at least be dangling, I guess, which is probably better than being left behind. Um, and then you would use that to clip in as you go forward. And so in certain sea conditions, we, we, it's a requirement on our boat to, to clip in, um, other sea conditions it's not. So it really depends, but basically on our boat, if you can see over here, we would run our jack line from the very stern cleat to the mid cleat, then all the way to the bow. And so it goes at a different angle than what this ASA example shows. And you can see it here in this photo, my jack lines are, are lashed onto both of the midship, midship cleats and then it goes forward and lashed up near the furler and then goes back on the other side. So I can, I can easily maneuver myself going forward and be clipped in at all times. Anybody else want to add any more comments on how you have done your jack lines or if you even use them on your boat? We use them, Mark, on Mira. Uh, I rig them very similar to yours, and they're not just for emergency. Uh, we use the Wishard tethers that have a little spring and there's two clips on it. So as yep. you move from one to the next, you can make sure that you are always clipped on at least one, one clip. But, uh, you know, when you're offshore, you know, we got in the habit of doing sort of a, a, a daily, uh, deck walk to just check, uh, the rig. And, uh, you know, so your jack line is used not just for, uh, you know, tough situations, but, uh, in daily routine in our case. Yeah, that's good. That's actually probably a good, uh, good procedure to have in place because we uh, are probably not that consistent when it comes to doing, doing our, our rig checks. Sarah, Sarah has a very good eye for, for small details and she will definitely ring the bell, even if I'm asleep, <laughs> to have me come out and look at something that might be amiss, um, which is fine. Um, it's good to have that, that, that uh, yin and yang on board. Anybody else? Anything else on jack lines? All right. <laughs> See you laughing, Jason. Um, let's talk now about uh, ditch bags. Obviously, I'm sure everybody everybody probably has one, um, but of course, a ditch bag implies that you're leaving the boat, and that would mean into either a life raft or to your dinghy in some sort of a bad situation. So, you know, the this is a photo that, that pretty much covers a lot of what we have in our ditch bag. We don't need to probably go through the full laundry list, but um, what we have found on our boat is it's very important that. Our pre-departure checklist includes going through the ditch bag. We always have a set of dry clothes uh, for everybody on board that go into some sort of a Ziploc bag that goes into our ditch bag um, above and beyond the standard stuff, which is you know communication devices, which would be um, our handheld VHF. Um, we also have a Pelican case that we have to put our iPhones in. We put our Iridium Go in. We also have a solar recharging um, panel that kind of unfolds that we have that also stores in the Pelican case. So we essentially have one Pelican case that has all of our communication and recharging capabilities for iPhones because with the Iridium Go, those of you that don't have one yet, um, you do need to use your iPhone or similar device phone to be able to make phone calls. You can send a distress signal, but you can't communicate via phone or text without a, a secondary device. Um, satellite phones, if you have one, you would check those in if it's not the Iridium Go. 
Um, and we do have high energy food that we put in, put on board. We put our, we actually also include, um, backups of all of our, of all of our devices. So we have a couple of hard drives that we have on board where we backed up all of our data and we put those in a Pelican case as well, because if the ship goes down, I don't want to lose all of our videos, photography and everything else that we've done. So anybody else have any more comments on ditch bags, what you do and, and um, how you handle ditch bags? I think that the nature of ditch bags has changed dramatically in the last sort of 15 years. You know, if you read sort of Callahan's book, um, there's another book of this English couple that did sort of two months at sea and they're eating turtles and fishing and sewing their raft back together. You know, even in the Pacific, I think you could assume that you'll be picked up uh, in like five or six days. And so the game to me is more about communications, water, you yep. know, suntan lotion, things like that, than it is about uh, calories. Um, and so uh, one thing that you didn't mention that I like a lot is Garmin has a product called the InReach, which is a, much more waterproof than trying to bring an iPhone connected to the Iridium Go, uh, and it's two-way texting. And so, uh, you know, it's another subscription, so that kind of stinks, but it, it's something that I, uh, I have on my boat. Yeah, that's a good point, Jason. And one thing that I left out, you see in the photo here, the water bottles. Um, we have a big 20-liter uh, jug um, for this just fresh water that we chuck, chuck in the water with a line attached to it. Um, we also have a handheld um, catered-in water maker that we also have. And, and I know that that might be overkill, uh, but I've got two kids on board and I just tend to be um, probably a little bit more on the redundant extra safe side. So we do have a handheld water maker that we also include in our ditch bag. Um, uh, anybody else do something similar? <laughs> Jason, you have like five water makers on your boat. <laughs> I'm you an did? expert, I've none. <laughs> Too heavy. <laughs> Too heavy. Uh, all right. Anybody else any more comments? We'll keep we'll keep moving if not. Okay, so this does kind of lead into the whole communication question. And I know that some of the folks on the call are looking at or actually are in the process or are buying new boats. And um, the question definitely comes down to communication. What do you need on your boat? Uh, what is considered good enough? Um, do you need uh, the Iridium Go? Do you need SSB? Um, I certainly have my opinions on this. Um, I have both of these on my boat, but I'll be quiet and let somebody else speak up and then I'll chime in. Let's tackle the big question, SSB. Do you need it on your boat? Do you think it's it's something that's nice to have? Uh, Jason's giving it his thumbs down. Um, anybody wanna jump in and kind of talk about it? I see, I see uh, SSB, thumbs up, thumbs down. Owners, Mark, the only the that... only time we've ever used one on Mira was during a rally when uh, you can yep. communicate, you know, and have a sort of a daily uh, radio net, which is nice. Um, you can't yep. really broadcast that way uh, long range with VHF or a satellite phone. So that's the only time we've ever used it. Uh, you know, I, I I think in all these gadgets, I kind of subscribe to the you know, if if you gotta if you're gonna have it on your boat, you better know how to use it. And uh, yep. SSB is one of those things that's a little bit of a black art and, and a dying art for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, I never got into the pack tour modem thing, although it came standard on the boat, um, you know, and, and I'm not a I'm not a ham radio guy. But, um, you know, I, I feel like I could use it in a pinch and I could certainly get weather uh, from it if I needed to. But our go to is the Iridium Go, no pun intended. Yeah. Fair enough. Anybody else want to chime in? I saw Nick, I saw a thumbs up for you guys on the um, SSB. Do you guys want to weigh in and give your thoughts on SSB? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, we agree with Glenn, you know, like the Iridium goes the primary, uh, but just bought one. yeah, yeah, just, just got one. like tomorrow, <laughs> um, but, but I like the idea of having the SSB as a backup and, and being able to communicate a little bit longer range when we need to. Um, so yeah, I, Good backup. It's it, and it was already here. I don't I don't know if it wasn't on the boat if I would have put one on, but I liked the idea of having it. Yeah. Hey, Gord, I saw you give the thumbs up. Um, can you just speak to your thumbs up? Well, I'm I'm a ham radio operator, so it was um, 
something that I enjoyed. So uh, I made probably more use of it than than most people. But I didn't get into the the modem Pactor modem stuff either. But the uh, yeah. the ham the ham side of it I did. Yeah, sure. So so um, Jason, we know is an adamant no. So Jason, before I kind of give give my opinion, <laughs> let me talk to you just briefly. And um, when you were part of the World Arc, was it a requirement to have SSP? How does it work? Because it used to be a requirement to have SSB and it had to be checked and tuned before you could leave. Yeah, it was a requirement and I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, the radio chit chat for fun. Um, yeah. and, I, and I got pretty into the SSB. I mean, I got my Pactor modem, did everything. I could download weather and I did it. It's just, you know, uh, the Radium Go is only a hundred times faster. So it's just more fun. Um, the other thing that actually is funny about SSB is in there, there's a DSC call. And there's two major flaws with that. Uh, one major flaw is most people don't have the second antenna that's required to receive a DSC call. So I, I installed that on my boat. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like just you're, you're running around sort of only doing half the job. Uh, and the second thing is I had a, an acquaintance who lost a rudder in the Pacific and they were on every one of the known sort of uh, channels to call in for this crisis. And basically an email to friends got a response long before the professional authorities actually were listening. You know, they just don't listen to those channels anymore. So you're on the right channel, you're using it correctly and, and you're there and it's it's not doing its purpose. So I think it's fun for a world arc, fun for if you get a group of friends, fun if you're Gordon yeah. as a safety device, spend your money on, on the Garmin inReach and yep. the Rigam Go and you're much better off. Yeah, I would, so, I would also so add, I would, Mark, that uh, uh, I agree. The, the, the whole system, as those of us that have them on board, um, it's, it's a complex system, right? And it takes, it takes some special knowledge to make it all, to install it properly, to maintain it properly. Yeah. And, I, and I think that maybe some of us are, have a little false security in, in, in the SSB and that we assume it's going to work when we need it. And, you know, I've had issues with mine. I'm sure others have as well. And, you know, that's, that's something to be thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, um, if, if I can just summarize, because I know that there are some people trying to consider, do they need it on their boat um, as a new build? Uh, do you need it on your boat as you don't have it, but you may want to install it? Um, my opinion is probably a little more, um, how would I say it? It's, we have it on our boat and we have thoroughly enjoyed our, our um, SSB uh, with the exception of the past two and a half, three years where we haven't even really turned it on. And the reason why is there aren't really any nets that we stay plugged into in Southeast Asia. Now, having said that, when we were in the Caribbean, when we were in crossing the South Pacific, when we were up and down from Fiji to New Zealand and back a couple of times, um, it was invaluable to us for a couple of reasons. Number one, we traveled with a flotilla of, of kid boats and we kind of created relationships in the Caribbean and we just would set up a, a, a uh, net on, on the SSB uh, for kids. And so we would stay in, in touch with all of our friends on a very consistent basis, sometimes two or three times a week, just to be able to have the kids stay in contact with, hey, where's, where's um, Outsider? Where, where are those kids? And we would just have it. It was very social for us. It was not so much about safety, but it was a very social device that we uh, really enjoyed. So we, we um, I would, would I do it all over again for us, given how we've used it? The answer is yes, but it's not for everybody. I mean, Gord, you would do it all, do it all over again. You're a ham radio operator. Um, Jason, uh, you would only do it if you wanted to do an ARC, otherwise you wouldn't. Or what's your summary? Yeah, precisely, yep. Okay. All right, so I, I won't I won't belabor it. I know that it's it's a it's a you know it's a tough call for people. It's not inexpensive, that's for sure, and it is not easy to operate until you've learned propagation and all the other stuff that kind of ties into to that. Um, let's move David, topics. Go ahead. I was going to say I have it. I have no idea how to use it. I do look at it as more of a communication fun toy. 
Uh, it's on my list of honeydews before we take off, but I plan to rely on the iridium. It's just like more yeah. like a cell phone. I could, I could learn it quicker. Yeah, sure. So, and you're right, David. I mean, you'll be a lot better served on this next topic, weather routing, for sure, with your iridium uh, versus trying to deal with the pack modem. I would not encourage anybody to waste your money on a pack modem these no. days when you've got the iridium go. That's for sure. <laughs> Do not waste your money on that. I mean, I use the Pactomodem a lot when we first got our boat, but I've got two other satellite devices. I have the V3, which is high-speed internet, and I've got the Iridium Go. The Pactomodem is just, it was a stupid purchase on my side, frankly, but anyway, didn't need it. Um, okay, so let's talk about weather routing and um, how you manage it on your boat. Um, and really, I put it into two different categories. Uh, I, I'm using Predict One as an example because I'm, I'm a huge believer in their product. It's not free. It's worth every penny, in my opinion, if you're out sailing. Um, and then also a personal weather router and when to use, um, in particular, a personal weather router if you, if you use one at all. We have, on our boat, used both scenarios and some of them um, um, in, in tandem. And um, the only time that we've ever really used weather routing uh, is when we were sailing in what I would call fairly tricky conditions that I knew could be tricky. And that the biggest passage that comes to mind is sailing from Fiji to New Zealand and back. You can get some really strong lows that come through that can be very problematic. And, and being able to, to route around that with a professional router, um, I think is worth the expense. I've done that a couple of different times in the past. But does anybody else want to kind of weigh in on what you use for weather routing and what has been been good or not so good in your experience? Jason, we had this conversation just before everybody jumped in in some ways. Do you want to just kind of summarize our conversation? Well, I'll talk about weather routers for a bit. I've used them a ton. And I basically use them because they're about, what, $100 a pop. It varies, but somewhere in yeah. there. I've used WRI, which has a very slick PDF they mail you. Uh, I've used um, oh, was a famous one from the Volvo Ocean Race. Uh, which I used off the coast of Brazil. Um, commanders. And, commanders, yeah. And then um, the guy in Florida. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Whatever. And then for, yes. for Chris Parker. Chris Parker. And then for the Bermuda race, we obviously hire a router for that as well. So I've used them because I love weather. So I enjoy their view and that discussion because that's part of the passage enjoyment for me. And then I've used them, just like you said, when there's a tricky passage, my confidence level is low, whatever. It's like having another adult on board to say, you're not going to die on this passage. You might be uncomfortable on the third day. This might happen, but you're not going to die. You're not going out into the hurricane. <laughs> so for a hundred bucks, that didn't seem like a lot of money if my confidence was low. And then sometimes my confidence was high and I still would use it because I was interested in that discussion. So I encourage them. The cost isn't huge. Uh, and especially good for your first year or two as you're getting more into it. The worst weather router is hanging out on the dock because I guarantee you, if you're about to leave on a passage, you're going to run into some nun nut who hasn't even left the harbor in a hundred years, who's going to tell you you're going to die if you go tomorrow. And they're going to get yeah. your wife just at the time that she's most stressed or get you when you're most stressed, <laughs> who knows what. So we just basically would never, ever listen to people on weather. That was just something, I mean, I listened to my friend's buddy. Yeah. He, she's a professional meteorologist. And other than that, basically, you know, I'm going when I'm going. Yeah. Anybody else? It's we're so true though, Jason. Right I mean, go ahead. I was saying we're having this go debate ahead. right now. He wants to hire Chris Parker and I just wanted to use predict wins. <laughs> so we're debating. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, if you if you haven't done a lot of weather routing um, already, then it certainly doesn't hurt to have a backup. But I'll let you guys debate. I won't get in the middle of that one. I will tell you just to reemphasize what Jason said. <laughs> I know when to when to stand down. Um, it, when we were leaving Langkawi three weeks ago to sail back down here to, to Penang, mind you, it's only a fifty nautical mile passage. Uh, there was you know, a weather alert out by the Coast Guard on you know. On, you know, rough seas and, and strong wind. And I was checking out and there's another sailor probably hasn't left his anchorage in years. Um, he said, he said, are you leaving today? And I was like, yeah. And he said, oh man, it's really dangerous though. Have you seen the alerts? I said, yeah. And, and the forecast was for um, uh, trade wind conditions. It was 20 knots max 
you know, two to three meter seas. And this guy's worried about leaving, you know, his, his anchorage to sail south. Anyway, it was just those types of things. If you listen to people, half of them don't know what they're talking about. Um, and they just don't have any idea. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was a very simple, easy, comfortable passage for us. And for him, it was like, never leave the dock. So whatever. All right. So we'll, we'll not belabor that point anymore. And let's talk about uh, dinghy safety. <laughs> so the photo um, on the left is, is from Jason. He sent this to me. I think he maybe that may have been his friend. <laughs> um, yeah. Too many cocktails, happy hour. I don't know, <laughs> but definitely a problematic or a good Photoshop job. But I do want to point this out. And that's, it's, it's, it is very important. You don't always think about safety in your dinghy, uh, but people, um, can die, especially at night when you're transversing an anchorage, going back to and from your boat. Um, we had a uh, an older guy who was an American guy and his son were here in Lankawi. And uh, about six months ago, they were going back to the boat at night and a fisherman was going full throttle in his hard, you know, uh, wooden boat and went right across the top of his dinghy and killed the father. The son did not die, but it killed him instantly. And so that would have been prevented most likely had he had lights on his dinghy, which he did not. So this is a true, a very big safety issue. What do you guys do for lights on your dinghy? What are your, what are your rules? What do you have? Do you have a bow light, just a stern light? I'm just curious. Uh, on Mira, Mark, we have one of those uh, uh, transom poles on our dinghy that has the red, green, and white uh, elevated. So you've got, okay. you've got basically both i've seen people you know but we've you know we've got a we've got chaps on the dinghy so it's kind of hard to mount uh for us it's hard to mount on the on the hypalon itself so we just we just yeah. have it mounted on a pole on the on the transom okay um jason what did you do on your boat did you have anything i know you had the center console yeah we had we would have the red and green light um and then uh, we had, so we had the full three lights going. Um, but then we'd also have a flashlight typically, or even worst case, you have your headlamp on as you know, if you're driving your headlamp yeah. on, you start looking at the person, you'll have choices. I mean, it's a very passionate topic for me because I would say of the injuries that I ran into during my years of cruising, 90 some percent were from dinging stuff. And a guy in my yacht club last year was run over by a local in the BVI while snorkeling. Local came in a 50-foot boat on a full plane, and he's killed. And, of course, you know how the BVI justice system works. The locals, you know, total pass, no problem. Um, mm -hmm. So, I, yeah, I think dinghy safety, it's not just about going at night. It's about wearing the little yeah. chain thing. There's just innumerous people's that get run over by their own dinghy and like lose a limb or an organ or things like that. I mean, it's really not funny. Yeah. And I was 60% yeah. good at that. You know, you should be a hundred percent. It's just not tough to put a good, you know, I put it on your ankle, put it on your wrist. If you fall off your engines off, you don't chop yourself up with your own motor. Um, and yeah. then the other one that's like, you know, uh, an, an easy one is you can come into some of the anchorages. And I found this more in the Pacific where the swell is dece deceptively large. So it's, a, it, it's blowing three knots and it looks like there's nothing uh, deceptively small. It looks like there's nothing going on and you're just coming in, you're having a laugh with your crew and figuring who's gonna get wet, wet flip-flops. And before you know it, it's because it's got, you know, big swell there, it just takes your ding and flips it over. And so you need to kind of like, if you haven't beached there before, do a little reconnaissance, see if you can see that little white line. You don't need to come in through the surf. Uh, it's very, there's other solutions than that. So I just being like, all, you're spending all this time being very smart on your 44 foot boat. But when you get on your more dangerous 11 foot boat, you're like, oh, it's all laughs. Let's have the drunk 12 year old steer. You know, that probably isn't great parenting. Drunk 12 year old's fine. Jason, not steering. We just, we just did, we had that same swamping experience with our dinghy. Uh, and I, and I, I have two cell phones that paid the price. <laughs> Were you wearing your um, your cutoffs thing? Uh, that, no, no, it was it was the uh, it was in the surf. You know, Pam had dropped me off to take the uh, trash to the, and and while she was waiting in what appeared to be calm seas, the dinghy was swamped, and didn't flip it over, but uh, took on a ton of water. And anyway, long story. Yeah, that's. <laughs> <true>. <laughs> 
<laughs> going back to the lights, um, what we have are suction cup uh, lights. Uh, one sits on the motor, the other one sits on the front. My problem is that white light is so bright, I get night blind. I can't see anything in front of the boat. I'm constantly like this, or I stick her in front of it. Yeah. Are there solutions, or is there a better way of doing it? I mean, you got to have it 360 on that light, I'm sure, and don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, the solution that we have on our boat is we have a stern, um, a stern, just a just a white light. I don't have port or starboard. I just have a stern um, light that's mounted on top of my dinghy uh, engine housing that goes up high enough where people can have as close to a 360 as as possible. Um, and I don't have any light in my me. eyes. Come to think of it, yeah, that's the one that's blinding me. I, I can't because it's coming behind. I can't see. I was thinking it was in the front. Really. I'm learning, but yeah, I don't know if it's wrong. No, right no, that's okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know but because, the white because light it doesn't need to be 360. That, the white light correct. does not need to be 360. That's correct, Gordon. Yeah, well, it, it I just, just has to be 180 on, on so at the back. No, hey. All right. Yeah, but, me? that's true. Yeah, no, no, you're right. So, so for proper navigation, you know, that's that's correct. Mine is just simply a. 360 waterproof light that I have, um, and actually is a is a um, uh, kayak uh, light that we have mounted on ours. Um, and it's 360 only because I want people to see from from the front. I understand you don't need it, but I don't have a port and starboard light. And I want someone to see me coming right at me, not just from behind or from from the sides. Very but, good. Yeah, you're right. You could take some tape, and I'm going to tape it up. Yeah. I'm going to tape yeah. it up. And you very cool. So you've got the red. Yeah. He's got the red and the green on the front, then he just oh. has 180 at the back, and that would elim uh, that's eliminate right. the, uh, that will fix the that night problem. vision issue. Yeah. Cool. That, that's what I did on my. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I hadn't even thought about that. You guys are so smart. All right. <laughs> um, let's talk about snuffing spinnakers and what you don't want to have happen when you're underway. Uh, <laughs> we all have our stories. If, if, you have, if you have something like this, um, Jason, I'm sure has his, he seems to be pretty keen on this idea. Jason, you want to just weigh in on this? That this was your idea to include this. That's so not. during the world arc, there was a catamaran, um, who they were taking down the chute and they were operating the snuffer. And when you do a poor snuffing job, which can happen at times, what happens is the line that you're pulling down on gets incredibly loaded up and your brain is not very smart. It's still got a little bit of like, you know, original eight brain it stays attached to the line no matter what happens and um the woman went overboard she just got completely airborne way above the lifelines on a catamaran and then dropped in the ocean and it was night and it was not that windy it was like you know high teens and another interior owner who i uh, won't name but who is almost as big as gourd he also went airborne on his interiors same technique. He's pulling down this line. He's, you know, he's got it. And so um, if instead you lead that line from the snuffer down to a snatch block that's on deck, uh, when it starts to pull, it pulls you down to the, to the deck level and instinctively you'll step on it with your foot or whatever and you won't go airport. And so that's, it's basically the only way I could see somebody falling off two fish was in a spinnaker maneuver. Um, and so you know, I could go through a 20 minute lecture on it, um, but, and I have a video on, on my website, but the point is um, that's the one area when you start working your way up the spinnaker curve, take it down at 13 knots, then take it down at 15 knots, keep working on your technique, do it during the day. And then eventually hit the point where my wife was taking it down in the low twenties at night, no problem. Yeah, impressive. So you mean Gail would, would stuff it in the twenties? That's- Yeah, no problem. Wow. Because we that's amazing. Just, no, it's it's super easy. You just blow the tack line, and the the yeah. entire sail starts becoming a flag, and it just loses all its load. And you're you're like, why yeah. am I pulling it through this block? There's no point. This is a waste of my time. And then it's all done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Well, that's good. Thanks, Jason, for that because that's definitely um, an issue. I have not been airborne myself, but I've been close and stuffing ours, so it's it was uh, tricky. Anybody else? Anything else? Okay, we will continue on. Uh, we are right on the hour, so we're pretty much on schedule. 
worst experience, safety consideration, whatever you've had happen while you've been um, on your boat, can you guys just jump in and share your scariest, worst experience? Who wants to go first? Go ahead, Glenn. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, Mark. You know, uh, okay. We, thankfully, thankfully, and I'm I'm knocking on this nice wood in my Antares right now. Um, we've never had a um, a really scary sort of safety related experience. We've been in some we've been in some very heavy seas. Um, we've been in some pretty uncomfortable seas, as as we all have. Um, but uh, you know, I, I never once felt that I wasn't safe. And I reminded that to Pam often. We're safe, but we may not be comfortable, but we're safe. And, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a great boat for being in tough conditions. So uh, I, I, I just have, <laughs> I thought about this. What would I say? And, and uh, yeah, I mean, safe. Not, nothing safe. to report. Sir. That's good. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good to hear. Um, anybody else have any experience to share? So see some smiles. We, we had we had a bad one uh, last year. You got to realize I bought this thing with very little sailing experience. Um, I think maybe six months on a sail time fractional owner on a 25-foot hunter. So I didn't know how to sail the bagatelle. We call bagatelle. it the ba bagatelle, yeah. <laughs> the spinnaker. Um, I had our friend Russell taught me how to put it up. Cause I figured I know how to bring down a sail. You point into the wind. You don't do that with a spinnaker. <laughs> no. Or you do. She's there driving. I keep saying, no point in, no point in. Just, and we finally, I was like, I'm just going to have to drop it down a hail here. Well, I figured I'd drop it down. Well, it catches the wind. So it goes into the water. Sails weigh a lot when they're in the water. <laughs> so I had to learn how to get it out of the water. So now I know about just letting the lines go. And we're taking notes left and right about that block. I'm like, wow, that would be so cool. <laughs> So about the worst we have, but that's just lack of knowledge and training going in. Everything sure. else, I feel so safe on the boat because everything's in that cockpit area. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anybody else before I jump in? Well, I was just gonna say we're as as newbies here as well. Uh, we've we've not flown the ASIM yet. So if anyone has like a white paper on <laughs> what to do, what not to do, we would we would be all ears. <laughs> I will send you the link to my video, which goes yeah, through yeah, the step by Wonderful. step. Well, maybe Mark, you can do it. I don't have their email addresses. Is this the original, yeah, sure. Jason, or have you updated it? No, the original. Sorry. Yeah, he's, he's he, Jason is well documented. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, that's good. So, I mean, the only issue that, that we've had had nothing to do with sailing or big seas, like you see in this photo with the big wave. It had everything to do with, um, and I mentioned this to, I think, the group before on a different call, but we had a diesel leak on our genset that was in the locker. And that diesel leak was, was um, the engine was hot enough where it was vaporizing the diesel. And so the intake on the um, on the generator was sucking in additional diesel fumes, so it was it was it was it was over fueling the engine. And when that happens, it gets into what's called a runaway situation. So our generator started to rev up, and I tried to turn it off, and I couldn't turn it off. Here, I went down in the locker. It was starting to smoke. It was going full full throttle. I mean, more than full throttle. It was just, it was just self perpetuating itself, sucking in more and more and more diesel. It was very scary because there was smoke billowing out of the, I'll never be able to sell my boat now. <laughs> there was smoke billowing out of the uh, locker. And, um, you know, it's, it was very scary. And so what ended up happening is by me opening up the hatch and I had a fire extinguisher, I thought for sure I was going to have a fire. I'm a certain of it. I just couldn't get the engine to stop. I didn't know what was happening. Um, by opening up and getting more oxygen in, in, in the uh, locker, um, it ended up stopping. And it was still smoking when it was done. And uh, that was a very scary experience. So then what was my takeaway and how, to, how would I prevent that? Well, I don't, I, you can't prevent it if, that's, if you get a leak like that. And for some reason, the intake is sucking in the, those fumes. It's not preventable. Um, it could happen to you. How do you stop it? 
the best way to stop something like that is if you have a book, not your hand, but a book or something flat that you can put over the intake on the diesel if it won't stop and you try to stop it within, with every other method, um, that will stop it or you get enough air like I did by opening it up. It will, it will eventually um, uh, stop itself. But it was, um, I thought we were going to have a fire and we read Anchor and I thought it was pretty bad news. I was yelling at the kids to get dual fire extinguishers. It was a pretty much chaos, probably the scariest moment we've had aboard field trip. Um, certainly not weather related. And that's pretty much it from our side. So it could happen, but it's, it's, um, hasn't happened again. All right. Well, that's that's all we have for this evening. So I want to thank everybody for uh, jumping in. Chad, good to see you. By the way, you didn't say a whole lot. You were you were you were you were laughing. I noticed at some of the stuff. <laughs> but good to see you, Chad. Thanks thanks for joining. Um, Chad owns Halo. For those of you that have not met Chad, um, and that's it for us for this evening. So thanks everybody for joining. We are recording this for those that did not make it. We will be putting that on the web soon.